Lord, once again, we're grateful for this day of all the days of the week where we can just chill out, relax, and hear from your word how we might be your people and how you might admonish us to follow you. I pray that would be the case for each and every one of us this day, that you would think our thoughts, that my words would be yours, you would bend our wills to your will, and you would take every single one of our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. It was business management expert and guru Peter Drucker who said, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Because anybody who has led institutional change in a business on a football, baseball, any athletic team, any organization, you can have all the best plans and programs set in place, but the culture will set the tone for whether that strategy can be carried out. And what our Lord is doing here in Luke chapter 6 is He's changing the culture. He's making sure that His disciples are on board. We're walking through Luke together, and it's just an amazing passage that not only I just read, but leading up to this. Last week, we left with him calling his original disciples of Peter, James, and John. Then it jumps to verse 17 of chapter 6. Why does it jump, you ask? Like I've said before, that's covered in the years we have Matthew and Mark in the lectionary where this year we're focusing on what we call the Lucan Beatitudes, or otherwise known as the Sermon on the Plain. He's come down from some kind of hill, it says, you know, when he came down. So obviously he's come down from the hill. And his goal here is to teach his disciples what it is to live in his kingdom. They have seen him do amazing things. There are Thousands of people around him at this time. Did you notice? All of Jerusalem, all of Judea, plus the people of Tyre and Sidon. Go look at a map. That's a lot of people that are following Jesus right now. But he wants to make sure those people who are his understand what it means to follow him. So he's starting to prepare them. And what you're going to feel as I preach this sermon what you're going to think as I preach this sermon, what you're going to get convicted, because every single one of us will be convicted on some level in this sermon, because I certainly am, is, you know what? It just feels upside down. It doesn't feel right side up. But the reality is, that's what our Lord does. Because it was these men and women who turned the world upside down with the good news of the gospel after our Lord was resurrected. So I encourage you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6, because in all honesty, you're a citizen of one or the other kingdom. There's only two kingdoms you can be part of, friends. The new kingdom of God and Christ, or the world's kingdom, the old kingdom. That's what's going on here. Paul says in Colossians 3.1, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, and brought us into the kingdom of the Son that He loves. So you're either a citizen of one or you're a citizen of the other. Choose. Which one you can be part of? 
But there's something else for us to keep in mind. Paul says later in Romans that the night is far spent. The day is at hand. Live as in the light. And it's vital for us, 21st century American Christians, to understand this. And what Paul is saying there is where we are in the spiritual history of the world, it is dawn. It's like at this time of year, 7 o'clock in the morning, the sun's not risen, but the sky is clear and you don't need a flashlight. It's morning, but it's not quite there yet. And what Paul is saying is that they're both happening. It's not day. It's not night. The day is coming. The night is leaving. Therefore, get dressed. Make yourself presentable. Whatever changes you have to make, change, because we're going with this kingdom. All right? Don't be fooled by the darkness, because even though you may be a citizen of God's in, in the new kingdom of Jesus Christ, our Lord, you can still be overly influenced by the old kingdom. So therefore, when it comes down to understanding this, you have to understand there are two kingdoms. There's the old kingdom, the kingdom of this world, and there's the new kingdom in Jesus Christ. So let's look at these. And if you're going to change the kingdom, you've got to change the culture. That's exactly what Jesus is doing. So first, we're going to look at the old kingdom in verses 24 to 26 and what the old kingdom values. Then we're going to look at the new kingdom in verse 20 to 23. So first, let's look at the old kingdom, the kingdom of this world. What does it value? First, it values Money And Jesus says to that, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. You know, what he's talking about there, of course, are physical riches. But, you know, you, you, we got to step back as Americans, right? Just for a second. Because on the global scale, we're rich. We are. I have air conditioning. Solomon didn't. All right? And he was the wealthiest person in the world and was held up as the richest person on the face of the planet, right? We are rich, friends. If you put my house on Timberlane Drive in Bukuru, Nigeria, I am king of Bukuru. All right? We are wealthy people on the global scale. So we got to pay attention to what the Lord is saying here. So what is he saying? It's not just physical riches because we know it's not a sin to have wealth. It's not. It's not a sin to be successful in business. But it's a sin if we make that our focus, and that's our power. Because along with money comes power. Along with money comes influence. Along with money comes comfort and success and recognition. So therefore, he wants to make sure that's not where our identity is. Secondly, he says, Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. This has to do not just with physical hunger, although it includes that, but it's those who are content with what they have materially, with their clothes, their great restaurants, the beautiful home, and they find all their comforts in those things and not their relationship with the Lord. Thirdly, he says, Woe to those who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. That is a fascinating word there. This is one of the values of the old world's kingdom and it's actually the word laugh, which is negative. 
Um, the experts to Greek will tell you it really is the word that means basically to gloat. It's like when your team finally wins over your absolute enemy and you gloat over it. I've been a Maryland fan my whole life. We haven't beaten Clemson in years. I hate those orange people. No offense to the middle misses. Mm. That's not true. I don't hate them. But the, you get what I mean. We gloat when we win. Your political party wins the election every four years. You gloat, don't you, when the other side just is now silent and moping. That's what it's talking about, is those kind of people. And finally, lastly, it says, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. That's recognition. You're among the popular crowd. You're among the celebrity, all the acclaim. And you like it. Because your identity is in that and not in walking with the Lord Jesus. But these are the values that Jesus' kingdom is replacing. But yet, that's what we want, right? In our own flesh. We like it when people applaud. We like it for comfort, success, recognition. But as Tim Keller says, the problem with this is it's always in the here and now. And that's all it is. It's the culture of what have you done for me lately? And it never is deeply satisfying, which is what the word blessed means. These things can't truly satisfy and naturally it's just survival of the fittest ultimately. But let's look at the new kingdom and let's look at God's kingdom. Scholar Michael Wilcock in his commentary on Luke says, In the life of God's people, will be seen, first of all, a remarkable reversal of values. They will prize what the world calls pitiable and suspect what the world thinks is desirable. In other words, the mark of what makes you a Christian is a reversal of values. The things the world puts as pitiable, we prize. We prize. See, the answer is prize is not the same as seeking. We don't seek poverty. We don't seek hunger. But the reality is, when we're walking with Christ in His kingdom, when these come upon us, they don't destroy us. We see their value. Because you know, every, the times you grow in Christ are those when you're struggling, right? When you look back over your life. When we were forced through circumstances to depend on Him, we come to know Him better. So when it comes to all these things, we recognize we, when life hits us, our lives aren't over. We can take them or leave them. But my identity is in Jesus Christ and as being his child, living in his kingdom. So let's look at these individually. First, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Well, like I said earlier, it is physical poverty that he's addressing here, but it's also throughout the whole council of Scripture being poor in spirit, as Matthew says. This is the idea of weakness, lacking in power and influence. Or flip it on its other side. You're not pursuing that ultimately. You're not pursuing power ultimately. You're not pursuing influence. 
You're pursuing a relationship with Jesus Christ and His love. And so many people come to the Lord and they think to themselves, you know, I've worked, I've done my best, I've, I've done my duty, God owes me at least a little bit. These, he shouldn't let bad things happen to me. Well, that's, that's not being rich. That's not being poor. That's kind of middle class. All right? And the problem with that is, that's the old kingdom too. You're either one or the other. You know, if that's in your heart, you see Jesus as an example maybe, but you'll never see him as actually someone who has substituted himself for you. And you don't have the power that comes from knowing that he's reversed his fortunes with you through the cross. And when you find your identity in Jesus Christ, even though you've been blessed financially, you know, you thank God for that. And you can live somewhat recklessly. You can give things away even as it costs you. And the world will always shake its head. But the reality is your identity is not in your portfolio. It's nice to have. It's great to be comfortable. That's not an evil thing. But that's not my ultimate goal. My ultimate goal in Jesus' kingdom is to glorify him and live unto him despite my circumstances. Because I'm rich in him. It's nice to have these things, but they don't control me. Christians know when you're poor this way, when you're weeping this way, when you're empty this way, the kingdom of God is near. And so when we walk that way, when it comes to our material possessions, we are deeply satisfied. Secondly, blessed are you who are hungry, verse 21, for you shall be satisfied. Well, all throughout Scripture, we're talking about a physical hunger, but we're also talking about a spiritual hunger as well. Because you see this all throughout Scripture. Hunger and thirst. It's the same concept. All right? It's a different kind of hunger. As a deer pants for the flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts before God. Earnestly I seek you. Shall I come before you, O Lord? When Jesus came... And became the source of all our sat with his coming, Jesus himself became the source of all our satisfaction. Jesus told the woman at the well, everyone who drinks of this water will never be will th be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And he said in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So Jesus blesses spiritual hunger. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. See, my friends, the promise is right here and now, but it's also eternal in Jesus. And we can know both hunger and satisfaction in this world through his word. Friday night and Saturday we had our Bible and apologetics workshop. And my hospitality coordinator, Catherine, made us this beautiful, absolutely gorgeous 
basket of healthy nuts and fruits and, and granola bars, and it was just great. But she also made a plate of chocolate chip cookies. Which do you think went first? <laughs> we killed those cookies, man. You know, we, that's the type of hunger for a relationship with the Lord that the kingdom people have. And we're not satisfied in where we are in the present. It's a profound hunger. Soren Kierkegaard told the story of, to illustrate spiritual hunger, by a duck who was flying with his flock in the springtime north across Europe. During the flight, he came down in a Danish barnyard where there were tame ducks. So he enjoyed some of their corn. So he decided to stay for an hour. Then he decided to stay for the night. Then he decided to stay for the week. Then he decided to stay for the month. And finally, because he relished the good fare and the safety of the barnyard, he stayed all summer. And as fall came, as he heard his mates flying overhead, and they're calling for him to join them. He felt a strange thrill in his spirit. So he starts to flap his wing, and he rose in the air to join his old comrades, but he couldn't fly any higher than the eaves of the barn and fell right back down into the pen. He couldn't, he was so soft and so heavy that he could no longer rise. So he said to himself, Oh well, my life is safe here. The food is good. I think I'll stay. So every spring and autumn, he heard the ducks fly north, fly south, calling him. And his eyes would gleam for a moment, and he would flap his wings. But finally the day came when the wild ducks flew over him and uttered their cry. But he paid not the slightest attention to them. Oh, friends, may we never, ever, ever get so domesticated in the faith of Jesus Christ that we don't hunger to know him, to know his word, to follow him, and to know one another along the journey. May we never become so well fed that we never hunger for the things that are above. Colossians 3, 1 and 2. The third aspect of people living in the kingdom is, Blessed are those who weep now, for you shall laugh. Now, Jesus doesn't mean, Blessed are the glum. Blessed are the cheerless. All right? Though some believers have felt that way and taught it that way. Spurgeon said once that there were some preachers he had known that appeared to have their neckties twisted around their souls. Robert Louis Stevenson must have known some ministers like that. Because he wrote in his diary once, I've been to church today and I'm not depressed. See, Jesus is not admonishing us in saying this, blessed 
are, are you who weep now. He's not saying, go cry. He's not admonishing us to a permanent melancholy disposition. Because we know, you know, humor and laughter are good and necessary for the believer. Solomon says, a joyful heart is good medicine. In the middle of the Civil War, it was Abraham Lincoln who said, if I did not laugh, I would die. And what Jesus is attacking here is superficial Christianity. Superficial and shallow faith that characterizes the world, characterizes the old kingdom. And that is the inability to weep at the right things and laughing at the wrong things. Simeon and Anna in Luke chapter 2 were good examples for us at Christmas time. You know, they were, uh, Simeon, were they, among them were those who weep now. I would categorize them in that category. As they were waiting for Jesus to be brought into the temple. Simeon was waiting for years for the consolation of Israel, Luke chapter 2. Anna did not depart from the temple worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. She was accompanied by a holy mourning. Both of these godly individuals were mourning for the condition of Israel and were praying for restoration, consolation, and revival through the coming Messiah. Jesus himself mourned for Israel. Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And while on earth, in his body, Jesus wailed mournfully, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, who had known this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. Jesus was both the ultimate mourner and the ultimate consolation of Israel. And so Simeon and Anna were in the minority. Many, especially the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the tax collectors, they liked life as it was. It was good for them. But Simeon and Anna wanted to see change, and not political change, but the spiritual newness of the kingdom. And when Simeon held baby Jesus and the Holy Spirit revealed to him, this is him, he said, Lord, I can die in peace now. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. And his laughter filled the universe. And it fills our hearts today. Because we can weep like Simeon and Anna did, not only for the consolation of Israel, but the, the condition of our church. The condition that our hearts should break for every empty seat this morning. For not only just our community, but the, the whole nation's church, which just doesn't understand how much God loves them in Jesus Christ. 
We're called to weep over lost souls. People who will go into eternal darkness without Christ. We're called to weep over the world's ministry, misery. Over the injustice that falls on so many helpless people. The racism that is still here. The unfairness that victimizes the weak. The sex trafficking which is still happening today. The child abuse, the battered women, the adultery, the divorce, the betrayal, the rejection, the loneliness. Over those who laugh now, but who, unless they turn to Christ, will suffer God's condemnation forever. See, we weep now, but look forward to the eternal joy that will be ours in heaven in Jesus Christ. It's the already and not yet of Advent carried out throughout the year. Because it's ours because of Jesus' accomplishment for us upon the cross and his resurrection, my friends. And the last characteristic of God's upside-down kingdom is that we're hated. We're excluded and we're rejected. Verse 22, blessed are you when people hate you. And when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Notice this does not say, blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil, period. It doesn't, seem, it doesn't say that. Though unfortunately, that's the way it's sometimes interpreted and applied in some Christian churches. Those who read it like that delude themselves into thinking every time they experience conflict, they're bearing the, the cross of Christ. Not necessarily. It's like the church that decided to buy a blimp. They, they named it their gospel blimp. And they all took turns flying the blimp over the town. They had a big banner across the back that said, Jesus saves. And they flew over the summertime while people were outside barbecuing, flipping their burgers, dropping gospel tracks down on people. You know? They thought this was great evangelism. And, you know, the townspeople put up with it for a while until they put loudspeakers on the gospel blimp. And flew over the town preaching the gospel and people to repent and believe. And after a while, the locals had had enough and they wrote an editorial to the town paper. And they said, for some weeks now, our metropolis has been treated to the spectacle of a blimp with an advertising sign attached to the rear. This sign does not plug cigarettes or bottled beverage, but the religious beliefs of a particular group in our midst. The people of our city are notably broad-minded, and they have good-naturedly submitted to the attempt to proselytize. But last night, a new refinement was introduced. We refer, of course, to the airborne sound truck, the invader of our privacy, the raucous destroyer of our communal peace. And amazingly, the next day, the blimp started to leak. And it was sabotaged. And the church said, we're being persecuted. 
No, you're not. You're just being rude. You're insensitive to your neighbors. You're thoughtless. And you're piously obnoxious. See, some are rejected because they're discerned as proud and judgmental like that church. But some are disliked because they're lazy and irresponsible. Kent Hughes says it well. Arrogance or incompetence mixed with piety is sure to bring rejection of the gospel. Okay? You see, Jesus' point here is that everyone who lives in his kingdom... We're not talking about living perfectly. We're talking about submitting to him, his love, and his ways, because this is where fulfilling life is found. Uh, you're going to be rejected. You're going to get excluded. Jesus said, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Verse 15, chapter 15, verse 20 of John. In other words, since the wind was in Jesus' face, it will be in ours as well. Paul advised Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live godly life in Jesus will be persecuted. And likewise, Paul told, he and Barnabas told the Christians in Antioch in Acts 14, through many trials and tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. I think Bonhoeffer and our generation said it well. He said, suffering then is the badge of true discipleship. The disciple is not above his master. That is why Luther reckoned suffering among the marks of the true church. And one of the memoranda drawn up in preparation for the Augsburg Confession similarly defines the church as the community of those who, quote, are persecuted and martyred for the gospel's sake. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ and it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called to suffer. In fact, it is a joy and a token of his grace. So I close with some questions. Are we deeply satisfied in Jesus Christ alone? Are we seeking riches? Or are we seeking a relationship with him, using our talents? If God blesses us with wealth, phenomenal. If he doesn't, that's okay too. We're powerless. Are we hungry to walk with Jesus? Are we grieving over the world? Are we grieving over our friends who misunderstand how much Jesus loves them? Are we excluded we're not invited to parties where we can rejoice and I know for some of us this is, these are very challenging words they're supposed to be because true life is found in this upside down kingdom Paul said it's in when I'm weak I am strong that's upside down because the cross was upside down, wasn't it? That our salvation comes through the weakness of our Lord being pinned upon a cross for our salvation. Well, let us trust in that. And as we do so, and we live in this kingdom, the culture of a church will change. Revival is sprung. 
and the church will know it. And not only will the church know it, but the world will know it as we walk together in Christ. And that's a culture which will proclaim the glory of the gospel in profound ways that will have everlasting effects. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for this day and grateful that you give us this word, Jesus. It's sobering, but graceful. Because in our own strength, we can't do it. But we know that when we place our total trust in you, we can. I pray that would be the case for every single one of us. That we'd be impoverished in you. Recognizing that it's all about you in our lives. That we would be hungry to know you, to follow you, to serve you. That we would weep with those who weep. We would rejoice with those who rejoice. And we would live unto you no matter how the world responds so that you would be glorified in our midst. And we would see you move not only in our lives but throughout this West Shore community. For in Jesus' name, we beg of you and pray. Amen. Amen.